Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Another episode of the Professional Football Researchers Association podcast. John Bozica along with you. George Bozica with you as well, as we have done a number of these now. And uh, we've taken some time off. We've enjoyed some holiday fun. We've enjoyed uh, the football season in terms of high school and college to this point. And uh, obviously the pros, uh, what, about 12, 13 weeks into the year now. Uh, seems like it goes faster and faster every year. But wanted to get back to doing a couple podcasts podcasts and going to have a topic tonight that is based all around a famous coach and that is coach George Allen who had so many great years as a professional football coach with the Rams with Washington uh, had cups of coffee a number of places and was very successful maybe mostly uh, known for what he did in Chicago at one point as well so truly a um, special man in the world of football and we're gonna have two different people join us over the course of the night but uh, first one that's going to join us is Lee Elder he is the executive director of the Professional Football Researchers Association, former journalist, and he has written 25 books, he told us, which uh, is a pretty high number, more than the man sitting next to me, George. He's, he's, he's still in the, the JV level at this point, <laughs> working to try to get one under his belt. So he's edited a number of them. Lee, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So uh, the book about George Allen and the topic – of George Allen. What drew you to wanting to write a book about him? It's called Coach George Allen, A Football Life, and we're holding a copy right now and showing it to you. And uh, obviously, it's a, a beautiful book, and uh, I've not had the chance to, to read it. I leafed through it a little bit earlier tonight, but what drew you to him initially, Lee? Well, there were two things. Uh, one of the people that I quote in the book who played for Allen at Whittier College, Max Fields is a good friend of mine and max has been after me for a long time to write a book about alan and that seed was in my mind for maybe 20 years or so and then after my book about the civil war uh, that bloody hill hilliard's legion at chickamauga was published by mcfarland they said to me now you should write a football book and i said the only idea i've got is george allen and that's how it got started and I sat next to my dad for many years at a lot of Rams games in the L.A. Coliseum in the 60s. And I knew that as I wrote this book, I was going to be thinking about dad. And we had just lost him a year or so before we started on this project. So all those things came together and made this something I just had to do. Yeah, and I mean, obviously a, a man, too, that, that does have an emotional connection for you as you mentioned there you you saw the rams play when when he was on the sideline you have a an emotional connection there did that make it 
easier for you to write this and easier to approach this topic? At first it did. Uh, there was a three and a half month period where I had to put the book aside and couldn't even look at it. Um, I was writing about the 68 season. My dad and I went to every game in 68 and 69, every home game. Yeah. And when I got to certain parts of the 68 season, it got to be too much. I had to put it away for a little while. So it was easy because I loved the story and I knew the story and I was comfortable telling the story. It was difficult because I had to start thinking about the fact that not too long earlier I had lost dad. So there was a lot of going on there. But what I did was finally I just skipped 68, 69 and 70 and wrote the entire Redskins period that got my momentum back, and then I finished up the Rams section. Lee, one of the things we want to do is we want to talk to you mainly about his years with the Rams. Uh, we'll later have Mike Richmond on, and we're going to sort of focus with him uh, on the Redskins uh, because he's obviously also written a number of books on the Redskins, but we feel that you're tied uh, to the Rams years. Uh, and uh, if you could explain a little bit uh coach Allen's genesis into the NFL? Well, George Allen was a head coach at Whittier College in the 50s. Whittier is in Southern California. And uh, during the time that Allen was coaching at Whittier, in the summers, he would volunteer his time with the Rams preseason camp, which is at Redlands University, which is in another part of Southern California. So the Rams knew him. And they hired him to be the wide receivers coach in 1957. And then after 57, Sid Gilman, who was the head coach, fired half his staff, including Allen. So uh, that was the first time the Rams fired him. Altogether, they fired him four times. But uh, uh, his he returned to the Rams in 1966 as the head coach after having a very successful time with the Chicago Bears in the early 60s. Uh, the Bears won the 63 championship, as both of you guys know. And the uh, football players on the team handed Allen the game ball. Instead of giving it to George Hallis, who was the head coach, he gave it to, they gave it to George Allen because he had done so much to prepare them for playing the Giants. So when he moved to the Rams in 66, the Rams were a franchise that was terrible. They had gone from the championship game in 55 to nothing all the way through 65. They were not a competitive team really uh in 1966 allen made the winners in 67 he got in the coastal division championship they won again in 68 they did not get to the playoffs but they were a winning team in 69 they started off 11 and 0 made it to the playoffs and then in 70 they didn't so uh, the rams were a bungling fumbling franchise until allen took over and then they were winners and twice during that span with the Rams, and you mentioned it earlier, twice during that span, he was fired. He was fired once by owner Dan Reeves, and then he was fired again by owner Dan Reeves. And my understanding from the book and everything else is the first time he was fired by Dan Reeves after a couple of seasons, uh, the players, the community, basically people rallied around him because they didn't want him to go. Yeah, you know, a lot of the players revolted. They 
said that they simply weren't going to play football in 1968 if Allen was not rehired. Roman Gabriel was among them. Gabriel said it was kind of a funny line. He said the Roman Gabriel travel agency is just about to get a new employee, meaning he was going to go to work for his travel agency because he wasn't going to be playing quarterback. Uh, Deacon Jones was another one who was vociferous in his support of Allen. So the, the players who had done so much losing without him wanted him back because they wanted to keep winning. Um, another thing that happened in 68 that sort of brought it all to a head was the Rams played a game in Kezar Stadium in San Francisco, which you guys probably remember is just not a real fun place to play football. No. And uh, Allen was sharply critical of the 49ers groundskeepers and of the condition that the field was in. The end zone particularly was in uh, just terrible shape. So uh, Reeves was unhappy about that. And in the following week, he said that uh, the Rams shouldn't make excuses. They lost the game, and he would not support protesting the condition of the field to the league and, and all those sort of things. So basically, in public, um, he told his coach not to complain about things, and the team didn't like that. Allen didn't like that. So the following week, after the Rams won a game in uh, against New York in Los Angeles, Reeves came into the locker room, and Allen wouldn't talk to him. And I don't think that that uh, helped Allen's cause because at the end of the season, he was gone. But I think the combination of Allen being rude to Reeves in front of reporters in the locker room, Reeves shooting down Allen in public after the game in San Francisco, and the fact that Reeves liked to fire coaches every three years anyway, I think that sort of played against George Allen in 1968. Yeah, that was sort of Reeves' uh, history. I know, and we researched the 51 Rams book. Uh, he could be uh, uh, he could be quick to pull the trigger. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Keysar Stadium. I think of Keysar Stadium. I think of the 49ers, but I also think of the movie Dirty Harry because <laughs> there's a famous scene in the movie Dirty Harry that they film in Keysar Stadium. Uh, and if you've seen the movie, I think you know what scene I'm talking about. Uh, so I always, whenever I hear Keysar, I automatically think of Clint Eastwood. I don't know why, <laughs> but I should, well, I should think about the Niners. It's not the first time someone got shot down in Keysar Stadium. You know? <laughs> Lee, you know, I was I was looking in Lee Elders, our guest, uh, executive director of the uh, Professional Football Researchers Association on the PFRA podcast here. Uh, through the Sports History Network. I was looking up stuff about George Allen while, while you and George were talking here, and, and one of the things that struck me that I think I knew this, but, you know, it's it's back in the back of my mind with a bunch of other football histories, just the guys that coached under him too. Uh, Howard Schnellenberger and Ted Marchabroda, and, you know, I mean, he, he really – this guy has quite a football tree with him too, and, I mean, that's all part of the Hallis tree too, isn't it? Uh, well, some of it is, yeah, um, but not all of it. Dick Vermeil was the first special teams coach in NFL history, and he wasn't a George Hallis guy. Allen just hired him. Uh, he only coached with Allen for one year, but he still talks about the impact that Allen had on his career. And, of course, he's in the Hall of Fame. And the next special teams coach he hired was Marv Levy, who was in the Hall of Fame. So the Allen coaching tree is quite significant. Uh, he got Howard Schnellenberger from Bear Bryant at Alabama. Uh -huh. And uh, he uh, one of the reasons was he knew that Bryant was really, really good with his kicking game. And he knew that Schnellenberger would bring that with him. 
And I think that that in some way impacted the decision to get himself uh, an extra assistant coach. Uh, there's a great story in the book about Schnellenberger and his first contract with the Rams. I'm not going to tell you the story. I want everybody to buy the book, but it's a funny story. We, uh, Alan obviously has never had a losing season with the Rams. Uh, in fact, he never had a losing season in any of the years that he was a head coach in the NFL. One of the sort of the theses of your book is why was he so successful? Why was he a winner? Can you elaborate on what some of your conclusions were as to why Allen was such a successful winning coach in the NFL? Yeah, there were a few reasons, but I think the biggest thing that nobody really understands about Allen was he was a tremendous judge of talent. And he could look at somebody playing for a different team in a different system, watch that player go, and he could project how that player would work in the George Allen system. He got players like Maxie Bond for that reason. He could see the way that Bond played for the Eagles, project the way he would play in Allen's system, and know that he would be a good player. That's something that Allen had that I think is, is not talked much about. Remember George Allen when he was with the Bears, he's the guy who drafted Gale Sayers and then Dick Butkus. And Gale Sayers was not the first halfback selected in that draft. There were two guys, two running backs selected before Sayers. So when people say, well, anybody could have drafted Gale Sayers, yeah, anybody could have, but two people didn't. And nobody in the AFL drafted Dick Butkus in the first round. So uh, Allen had a great ability to judge talent. And when he went with him, when he went to uh, Washington, I know Mike's going to talk about the Washington years. But he took with him a lot of those talented guys because he wanted his system and he knew that he could salt and pepper them in with the good players that Washington had. I'll let Mike talk about that. But Allen's ability to judge uh, talent was, I think, very significant. The other thing was George Allen believed in the kicking game. And uh, I say in the book that the two most impactful plays in his coaching career were a block punt against the Green Bay Packers and a block field goal in, in the Super Bowl against the Miami Dolphins. Um, his ability to make special teams important changed pro football. You know, and that's that's interesting that you bring that up about special teams and, and how he was the first one to hire a special teams coordinator. His impact on the game do you think we'll ever fully realize what that is then, you know, and, and just the effect that it's had since the, the, the 60s to now? I mean, even before that, but just his impact for being the first to hire that. Like, I mean, that's a, that's a staple on an NFL team now, isn't it? I mean, what, what kind of impact do you think we'll look at this guy as having 100 years from now? Well, I think when we get further and further away from anybody, no matter who it is, whether they're the president of the United States or somebody like that, you know, we, we lose a sense of the impact that they had. But I think that Allen's biggest contribution uh, was his belief in the kicking game, his expansion of his of his. Uh, uh, coaching staff to include that. And he had to convince Dan Reeves, who had just fired him, to hire a new coach. You know, he had just gotten rehired, and now he wants to make it more expensive to have him. But he was able to convince Reeves that that having uh, a special teams coach would be, would be very important. And we all know that it was. If you follow the game now, as you guys were saying, 
Um, special teams are a very, very important part. And the special teams coordinator now, I think, has assistance on most NFL's uh, coaching staffs. Do you think part of the reason for the friction between him and Reeves was that Reeves was a very hands-on owner and Allen had a reputation for being a very hands-on controlling coach that basically wanted to control, you know, everything, including, you know, the direction of the sun. Um, I think there was a famous story about him wanting to know where the direction of the sun was, which you might be able to elaborate on. But do you think that was the reason for part of the friction between the two? I think so, but I think also um, Allen was a free spender because it wasn't his money, and uh, that bothered Edwin Bennett Williams also. Edward Bennett Williams of the Redskins too. I think that 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 didn't help Allen much uh, in his relationship with Dan Reeves because you know Allen was spending Reeves' money and basically saying he wanted the final decision. Reeves wanted the final decision on how his money was being spent, and that was part of the reason for the friction. Um, and you were talking about the um, angle of the sun. That was for the Super Bowl game against Miami in the L.A. Coliseum, a place where he had coached for all those years. And he still wants somebody to go scout the position of the sun at kickoff time. It's You would think that Allen would have already known that. You call him in the book, if I'm not mistaken, the first modern NFL coach. Why do you call him that? Well, he worked more hours than other coaches did. Um, he expanded his coaching staff to include a special teams coach, which had never happened before. And um, his approach to breaking down the schemes, both offensive and defensive and special teams of opposing coaches was um, much more uh, complete than other coaches were doing at that time. And that's not me saying that. That's Dick Vermeil saying that. Did his wife once call the police because he wasn't home and she was wondering where he was? When he was coaching at Morningside and then later when he was coaching at Whittier, uh, it'd be 2, 3 in the morning, and uh, she'd be sort of wondering exactly where her husband was. So she would call the police, ask them to go to the coach's offices at the university and just make sure her husband was okay. <laughs> you, you know, one of the guys that, that played for him, and I guess I want to – maybe get your opinion on this because I think he's a guy that's in the PFRA all of very good Roman Gabriel. And and I want to get your opinion on that. And, and maybe if there's anything that, that you could share that, that George Allen would have said about him. I mean, do you think this is the guy that deserves to be in the hall of fame after doing research about George Allen, about him, about those Rams teams? I do. And part of the reason that I feel that way about Gabriel is not just the time that he spent with the Rams. At the end of his career, he was with Philadelphia. And I think he was comeback player of the year uh, when he was playing for the Eagles. He had some good years with Philadelphia there at the end of his career. And those were not good Eagles teams, uh, not when he got there. They they got a little bit better. But uh, Gabriel, I feel, is one of those guys that should be in the Hall of Fame despite the fact that he didn't win a championship. We, we tend to put quarterbacks in there if they win a championship, and we tend to hold it against them if they didn't. But Roman Gabriel is one of those guys that I feel was and is deserving of being there. He was um, a dominant player during his career. When it comes to a guy like uh, a George Allen, and I know I asked about this earlier, but in, in researching and, and reading about him and learning more about him, where have you seen 
his impact on future coaches. Lee, have you found that? Have you seen that, that there are coaches that are, you know, in, in maybe other sports even, or maybe in the game of football that have been able to say, hey, if not for George Allen, I might not have been in the position that I'm in as a head coach. I haven't seen it. Although, you know, you have Dick Vermeule, you have Marv Levy. Um, they both talked about their time with Allen. You know, you have coaches come in and coaches go out and, and you don't know what system they would have used and, and things like that. But what, where I found Allen's influence is in his former players and the way that they talk about him. Uh, there's a guy named Mike Hull who played fullback and he was going to be out of football. Allen brought him in to try out uh, with the Redskins, and he ended up being with the Redskins for five seasons. And he talked, Hull talked about the impact that Allen had on him. Uh, my friend Max Fields, who played uh, for George one year at Whittier College, will still tell you today about the impact that Allen had on him, not only as a football player, but also later on when Max was a coach the George Allen impact on him was, was quite uh, obvious. Also, he, he talked about the organization of practices and things like that. Um, The players that played for him later in life thought about him quite a bit and had a very high opinion of him. And so uh, if you don't look at the coaches so much as you look at his impact on the players, it becomes more obvious. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned that Lee Elder, our guest, by the way, uh, author of, George Allen, Coach George Allen, A Football Life, uh, as well as a number of other books. And uh, it's a great book if you've not seen it on the front. It has a picture of him as the Washington head coach from 1971. It's a beautiful addition to your library if you're looking for a book to add for Christmas. As uh, Lee Elder, Executive Director of Professional Football Researchers Association, our guest, Last thing I want to ask, and then I don't know what else George has for you, but last thing I wanted to ask, you mentioned some of those like organizational things, some of the things that the players mentioned. You mentioned your friend, too, and I guess uh, I want to ask from a standpoint of of those things in a practice, of those things during a week, what are some of those things that they've told you about that he used to do that made him unique, that made him different at a time where other coaches weren't doing those things? He did a lot of team building, but he did it in unique ways. He uh, he had uh, he had barbecues in the park for some of his college players. He had uh, during the years that he coached in college. Um, he did things to sort of build up camaraderie. He uh, and I think Mike will probably tell you about this. He broke his hand giving a karate demonstration in the locker room one time when he was with Washington. Um, and with the Rams, he did other things um, to build camaraderie. And he understood what that meant. He brought in Bill George, who was a longtime veteran linebacker. He was at the end of his career. But in 1966, Allen brought him in to play for the Rams so that the Rams players who had not done any winning could see how a champion prepared to play football. And Allen understood team chemistry about as well as it can be understood and he was very dedicated to making sure he had the kind of of chemistry that he wanted in the team and that was something that is unique Allen didn't yell at his players he talked to them but he did not yell he made them work hard he gave them long practices and worked them until they would you know about ready to fall down but he did not yell he was a talker not a yeller and and some of the players I've talked to who later coached 
said that they coached the same way because that was a way to get buy-in. The guy isn't yelling at me. He's talking to me. He's coaching me, not yelling at me. And that gave him buy-in, which creates team chemistry. I have two other things I want to ask you about, Lee. One is, for as great a coach he was, he was also known for his eccentricities. Uh, I know one that I can come to mind is, is that he always tried to eat soft food because it didn't take up as much of his time, uh, which I, I think is sort of humorous. And I know he had an affinity for ice cream. But can you go into some of those eccentricities? Because he, he, he I, I always remember during that time frame watching the games and how they would sometimes, you know, refer to him as a great coach, but, you know, also, you know, had some, you know, some unusual, you know, uh, uh, things about him. Can you go into that? Well, he was a unique individual. Let's yeah. let's agree on that. Uh, along with being a, a tremendous football coach, one of one of the guys that played for him at Whittier told me that that Allen would say, "Okay, the other team has a first and goal at our three yard line. Now we have the advantage." And you know that sounds a little odd, but by the time he was done explaining his point to them, there was less ground to defend. They had to come right at you. Uh, you know, you know what you're going to do defensively. You don't have to think about it. You just have to go play it. That may sound a little eccentric, but he was right about it. So uh, there are other things that, that I heard like that that kind of made you think, okay, that's a little odd, but doggone it, it worked. So um, uh, I guess another thing we've talked about when he had somebody go check the angle of the sun in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum prior to the Super Bowl game. Yeah, George probably should have known where the sun was going to be. He coached there, you know, for all those years. But it was a different month than he'd ever coached there. He wants to see exactly where it's going to be because that's going to change if you get the coin flip a certain way, what angle you want, you know, which – which zone do you want to protect and all that kind of thing. So uh, he did have some eccentricities. He he preferred not to chew. He preferred to eat, uh, drink his food, you know, milkshakes or whatever else he could do simply because it would take so much more time to have to chew something. He he was all about getting back to his scouting and, and doing all that kind of stuff. But um, you can't say it didn't work. He was uh, at one time, he was the head of the President's Council on Physical Fitness because he understood physical fitness, and and uh, he was a very healthy individual all his life. So you'd have to say that uh, that may sound a little eccentric, but it kept him healthy for a long time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, and I, I did know that. And actually, um, I was going to get into some of his presidential relationships since we're going to be talking about the nation's capital with Mike uh, Bridgman. I was going to get into some of those uh um, I guess, relationships he had with uh, some of the presidents. Last question that I wanted to ask, uh, unless John has anything else, is we've already mentioned the first three times he was fired by the Rams. He was fired a fourth time. After after his tenure with the Redskins, he was rehired, and it was sort of a shock at the time. He was rehired by then-Rams owner Carol Rosenblum, and things didn't work out so well. Can you go into that? Yeah, things didn't work out so well. And the reason is that George Allen had always gone from uh, gone to a team that was losing. Why else do you fire your coach? You don't fire a winning coach. You fire a losing coach. But the Rams had allowed Chuck Knox to leave uh, after a very successful tenure in Los Angeles. And they brought in Allen, but they didn't allow Allen to be the general manager. 
Don Klosterman was a general manager of the Rams at that point, and he was a very good one. So they brought him in and said, all you do is coach. And after two preseason games, the players were unhappy with the way Allen was doing things. He was different from Chuck Knox, and they were unhappy that Knox was gone in the first place. So they could have brought in just about anybody, and he would have been uh, unhappy, uh, I'm sorry, unpopular with the players. So after two preseason games, uh, Rosenblum fired him and uh, paid him every penny that he was supposed to get paid for his contract, but he fired him. And in the book, I make an interesting point, at least I thought it was interesting. Uh, years later, Rosenblum's widow, Georgia Frontieri, became owner of the Rams, and she hired a coach named Dick Vermeil. And Vermeil had some players grumbling because he made him practice a long time, he made him work hard, he made him run, did all the things that you have to do to build a team up and the players were unhappy about it. Georgia Frontieri stood behind Dick Vermeil, who then won a Super Bowl. And it's so, interesting too, it's interesting too, because after they got rid of, uh, well, go ahead, and then, I'll ask this, and then I'll ask this aside. Well, I was just gonna say that it's the difference in owners. You know, if, if yeah. the Rams hold on to Allen, if they make a point that he's the coach, if the players have to follow everything that he's got, George has now got a winner. A yeah. proven winner, and he's got some good football players on that team. Isaiah Robertson and Vince Ferragamo and Pat Hayden and, you know, a great football team and a great defense. Knox had built a great defense. It would have been interesting to see what that Rams team could have done. It's one of the great what-ifs of the George Allen story. Well, and it's interesting, too, and that's what I was going to allude to, is I, I believe they brought in Malabasi, uh then as the coach, and he uh, got him to the Super Bowl in two years and lost to the Steelers and Terry Bradshaw and uh, – um, you know, the, that great Steelers team. But then the thing about Malavasi was I, I always had heard, even though Allen was also a bit of a player's coach, Malavasi was obviously not the disciplinarian, but Malavasi really didn't have that staying power and that success over an extended period of time that Allen did. He did get him to the Super Bowl, which I'm sure was, was a moment of celebration in Los Angeles, but he didn't have that staying power that Allen did in terms of winning. Well, he, he was a very good football coach. Uh, he was on Allen's staff. They didn't bring him in. He was on Allen's staff. He just got promoted to head guy. But, I mean, Ray Malavasi was a good football coach. But, as you say, he didn't have Allen's staying power. And I'm he didn't last, you know, much longer beyond the Super Bowl. I, I still think one of the great what-ifs is what if they had left him, left Allen in charge of that Rams team. Um, and given him a little bit more say about building the roster, made him maybe – a semi part of the general manager tree. And I think that that would have been an interesting football team. I think it is. Uh, and I, I think you kind of brought this up, Lee, but uh, I think it is unique that eventually when the Rams did finally win their Super Bowl in 1999, that Dick Vermeil was the guy who was on the sideline for them eventually in 1999, kind of the, full circle and, uh, you know, kind of almost Allen working in mysterious ways there, uh, kind of getting it done in a, in a different, unique way. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's something Coach Vermeil thought about when uh, they finally hoisted Lombardi all those years later. Uh, yeah, Lee, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Lee, if people want to get the book uh, as a Christmas present or just to get it to add to their library, where, where can they purchase the book? 
Well, then go to uh, the McFarland website, McFarland.com. Uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with it. And uh, just uh, look up football books, and it'll be right there. Coach George Allen, A Football Life. Um, it's five years of my life, too, so I guess you could add that on to George's life, and there you go. It was, uh, it was a great thing, uh, a great deal of fun to go through that research, and it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. Yeah, Lee, I, I did want to give you one last chance here. I know that that in the acknowledgments and, and right before it, that you do have a, a word about your dad. Um, just the the importance the book has to for you because of that and because of the, the connection that you and your dad had around the Rams and around the teams that George Allen coached. Maybe George Allen will never know that, probably never would, but that connection that you built because of it. Uh, tell us about that a little bit. In 1968... There's a very famous game where the Rams lost a down due to an officiating error. It was against the Bears, second to last game of the season. And as we're walking out of the Coliseum, I've got my transistor radio and Dick Enberg said, it's been confirmed the Rams should have gotten one more down. And my dad said, I thought so. I thought they made a mistake. As I was writing this book, I kept thinking about that moment. And when I had to write about the 68 season, I got closer and closer to that. And that's when I stopped for a little while, like I told you about. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, dad liked George Allen. And obviously as a boy, I love sitting next to dad at the Coliseum. It was a great thing. And I have to say too, that my mother and my sister never complained when we took off to go to a ball game. So it was sort of a, a family thing. It's always great to hear that. That's a uh, similar relationship I have with this guy next to me, too. So it's it's cool to hear that. So uh, I uh, I appreciate you joining us, Lee. Lee, uh, Lee Elder, the executive director of the Professional Football Researchers Association. Thanks for joining the podcast, Lee. Thanks for having me, and uh, I hope you have a good talk with Mike. episode revolving around George Allen continues on the Professional Football Researchers Association podcast. Just heard from Lee Elder, who is, of course, the author of Coach George Allen, A Football Life. And uh, we thank Tim for joining us. And now we are going to be joined by author and pro football historian and Mike Richmond to talk about his book, George Allen, A Football Life. No coach in front of it this time, just George Allen. And it's a thicker book and has a lot more heft to it. And I like the color scheme that he chose as well, because it's clearly reflective of Mike's favorite team. I'm guessing the now Washington commanders. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me on. That's going to be great. Absolutely. So Mike, I, I asked uh, Lee the same question earlier and, and I like doing this whenever I talk the same topic about somebody, but um, what drew you? to coach Allen was it the fandom that you have for Washington was it the, the coaching style what drew you to wanting to write a book about the great coach George Allen well the fandom was was part of it it was a major part I mean the uh you know, I've been part of the Redskins fanaticism over the years and I'll refer to them as the Redskins because that's what they were known as 
when he coached them in the 70s. I grew up in the Washington area, Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a D.C. suburb. So when Allen came here in 1971 to coach the Redskins, I was 10 years old and I became hooked on that team. They were that was my team. And I would, you know, follow them every Sunday. I'd be, you know, running home to if I if I didn't catch uh, the entire game, maybe running home to find out you know, what was that score. So, I, you know, I knew the I knew of George Allen and I knew the uh, who the players were and the numbers and uh, and I. And my father, as a in a promotional event, he invited one of the Redskins players, running back Charlie Haraway, to come to his men's clothing store. So that was a great uh, you know, photo shoot opportunity, autographs and everything. So what I'm building to is that that was really you know, the growth of my own uh, fanaticism in the team. And I chose uh, – I, I love to write as a kid, and I chose journalism as a career, and – I wrote the Redskins Encyclopedia, which was published in 2007, and then the Washington Redskins Football Vault in 2010, and Joe Gibson Enduring Legacy in 2015. So in my mind, George Allen, and this I think is like the final piece to the answer to your question, George Allen was was like a biography, a definitive biography on George Allen. That was like the final piece of the puzzle in my mind. With the three other literary projects that I had completed, I had to write something on Allen. And yeah, he was my coach when I was growing up watching the Redskins. I knew a lot about him. I had I wrote a bio about him in the Redskins Encyclopedia, and I touched on him uh, quite a bit in the Redskins Vault. So, uh, but I, I had to write a, a definitive biography on on him, and that is what drove me to to really undertake this project. I want to go back in time to, and I only want to do this because uh, John and I obviously are both from Northeast Ohio. Uh, I grew up in Canton. John, obviously, after I moved here, uh, was born uh, in Akron. But uh, there's a Northeast Ohio tie to George Allen that was in your book. And it's, it's, a, it's an obscure thing, but it caught my eye. Uh, Chuck Mather, who was with the Bears, and actually was a very ultra successful high school coach at Maslin High School here in Northeast Ohio, went 57 and three during his six seasons there and won six state championships. He was he was to the 50s in Maslin, what Paul Brown was during the 30s. Chuck Mather played a role in George Allen getting job with the Bears. Do you, do you remember that story from the book? Oh, absolutely, yes. That was... Uh... Well, George Allen was out of coaching at the time. This was, he was let go by the Los Angeles Rams. That's the only, you know, that's the conclusive uh, thing that I could, you know, the, the way I pinpointed how he was, how he departed the Rams after the 57 season. So he was out of coaching. He was, um, one thing he was doing was he was selling weighted footballs. He also sold golf clubs. But with by selling weighted footballs, he was able to make his way into the training camps of several of the NFL teams, one of which was the Chicago Bears. And now that's how he met Chuck Mather. And uh, Mather actually, uh, he sympathized with Allen's situation. He knew that, he knew of Allen's football mind uh, in speaking with him. And, and the fact uh, he, he knew a lot about the game at that point, uh, uh, having coached for nearly a decade at the college level. And then he coached in the NFL with the Rams. So Mather approached Hallis about hiring George Allen. And Hallis at first brought Allen in as a spy. The, the, 
58 Bears had two late season, regular season games against the Los Angeles Rams, who Allen knew of from the prior season. So Hallis brought him in as a spy to you know, tell the Bears secrets about the LA Rams. And and then after, in the early um, months of 59, that's when Hallis hired him as the Bears head talent scout. And then later in, uh, late in 62, he appointed him to replace uh, Clark Shaughnessy as the Bears' uh, defensive coordinator. That was, that was like an interim role, and then he made him permanent in that role in early 1963. So, Mike, are, are you telling us that coaches before Jim Harbaugh spied on other teams in football? Is that what you're telling us? That is absolutely true, yes. <laughs> it existed before Jim Harbaugh, long before. In fact, Allen, when he was the head coach in the NFL – he was known as the league's master spy. I mean, he would send his assistants out to to uh, spy on other teams and watch them in practices, particularly the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, that's where that story was was most prominent. Uh, that you know, and Bob Lilly, the great Cowboys defensive tackle, who I interviewed for the book, told me this story that they were so afraid of George Allen and his staff watching them in practice that they moved to an indoor facility after a while, that that Cowboys team. So, yeah, Allen was really known for it. Uh, there's also this one little anecdote, uh, a quote from Weeb Eubank in the book, that in 1972, uh, he had the Jets practice at Rikers Island, with his, you know, the major prison is on Rikers Island. So Weeb Eubank was quoted, quoted as saying, well, yeah, let's see George Allen sneak somebody in there. So, <laughs> he probably so, He probably uh, had a guy on the inside, didn't he? <laughs> uh, maybe he possibly could have but but the point I'm making is he had learned that initially from Hallis Hallis was, was George Allen's top mentor as top coaching mentor so he picked up the good and the bad from Hallis one of the good things that he learned from him was Hallis's workaholic nature I mean, Hallis was, he was a 24-7 guy at that time. Uh, of course, Allen took that to a new level when he became a head coach in the NFL. But he picked that up from Hallis, too. So he learned the good and the bad from Hallis. So jumping ahead now, uh, George Allen has his time with the Rams. He's fired by Dan Reeves. And within a matter of days, uh, he's contacted by Washington. Can you tell that story and, and what things were like in Washington? Because my understanding at the time was is that, you know, even though a couple of years ago it seemed like all the Washington teams with the Nationals and everything else were uh, very, very competitive. This was a time when really the Senators, the Redskins, these teams were not very competitive. And uh, they bring in George Allen. And can you explain all that? Yeah, sure. Well, I want to mention first that uh, Allen was fired for the first time by Reeves after the 68 season. It was a, um, a very confusing situation. I mean, Allen had this remarkable record in his first three season coaching the Rams, and uh, but Reeves didn't like him. Uh, he was jealous, and he didn't like Allen's big spending ways because Allen had control of the active roster. He could get all these veteran players and pay them a lot of money. So, so Reeves fired him the first time after the 68 season. So the point I want to get at, though, is that's when the Redskins first pursued George Allen. Edward, Edward Bennett Williams knew him, that he had met Allen at a 1966 uh, owner's meeting, and, and Allen happened to be in attendance, he, and he liked him there. And also Jack Ken Cook, owner of the Los Angeles Lakers and Los Angeles Kings, he came to know Allen, and that, they actually became 
friends. And so both Williams and Cook influenced Allen to come to Washington at that point after the 68 season. Allen uh, said, no, I'm going to fulfill my five-year contract. I'm probably going to get fired again. But uh, so he stayed with L.A. And sure enough, he did get fired after the 1970 season for the second time by Reeves. So uh, Edward Bennett Williams and, and Jack Hancock, they already knew of George Allen. He was the, the hot item on the coaching market at the time, they reeled him in quickly. I mean, he, there were some other teams that were interested in him, such as the, uh, I believe the Eagles were interested in him too. And, and a few other teams, but, but he quickly became the Redskins head coach. That was just a few days after he was fired by Reeves for the second time. But that first season when Allen coached the Redskins, the senators moved out of Washington. That's when they became the Texas Rangers. There was no, professional basketball team in Washington at the time, the Bullets didn't move to Washington from Baltimore until 19, the 73-74 season. And the Washington Capitals, the hockey team, didn't start playing until 74. So the town was entirely Redskins. And, uh, and you know, it was like the awakening of, of a sleeping giant because they the Redskins had been you know, very entertaining on offense in the 60s, but they were still a mediocre to, to bad team. But Allen, he had those great offensive players uh, that he, he inherited from that team, but then he got great defensive players as well through his, his trading ways, got the Ramskins, and they finished 9-4-1 in, in 1971. His first, coach, uh, first year coaching the Redskins, they lost in the first round of the playoffs to the 49ers. But the following year, he took them to Super Bowl seven, And... Um, they lost to the Miami Dolphins that year, 14-7. That was the Dolphins team that finished 17-0. But but that was Allen's best Redskins team. After that, they went to three uh, more playoff appearances and losing in the first round each time. But, uh, yeah, that was that, that's his uh, Redskins, do you, Redskins do season you, totals in a nutshell. Yeah, do you think that, that his coaching and, and his years there were – what allowed guys like, you know, Chris Hamburger and, and Charlie Taylor and some of those guys, do you think those allowed those guys to uh, eventually don their gold jackets later on in their careers? Or or do you think that they were established before? Do you think he helped mold those guys into better players during his time there? I I don't think so. I think what Charlie Taylor was, was already an amazing player. I mean, he was – he had been um, – uh, converted. For, he was originally a running back. He was NFL Rookie of the Year in 1964, but he was converted to a wide receiver in 1966, and he continued uh, his. You know, he, he was a superstar at that position as well. Uh, one year, 1967, uh, Jurgens, Jurgensen finished number one in the league in passing. Taylor was number one in catches. Jerry Smith was number two, great tight end. Jerry Smith and uh, Bobby Mitchell was number four. So just imagine that talent, that level of talent on the Redskins offense at the time, they just had no, no defense. I mean, Hamburger was a great defensive player. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Hamburger, uh, Rick Owens was, was on that Redskins team, another really good defensive player, but Hamburger was already established as, as one of the, the best linebackers in the game at that point. And uh, he had already made a name for himself as the hammer too. I mean, he had this, uh, uh, way of tackling where he would take his forearm and just, you know, clobber a ball carrier around the neck. <laughs> that was, that was Chris Hamburger, the hammer, which was you know allowable at the time. But, uh, uh, but yeah, so in answer to your question, those, those are two 
great players already when, when Allen came to Washington in 1971. But what he did is he fortified the defense. I mean, he acquired all these great players that he had in Los Angeles, who later became known as the Ramskins. He got Dyron Talbert, great defensive tackle. Um, Myron Patios, he had a few uh, good seasons left in him. He had a bond, Maxie Bond, too, who had been an All-Pro previously, but he barely played in Washington. Boy Dowler, he gave the, the Redskins uh, another a pretty good season in 1971. Um, so, uh, Rosie Taylor, he got him, too. Uh, Roosevelt Taylor was a player that Allen had acquired as the Bears' head talent scout. Uh, he got... Um, Rosie Taylor uh, in 1961 as a free agent out of Grambling. Rosie Taylor had uh, a league tying nine interceptions in 63, the Bears championship season, which Allen was the architect of that Bears uh, great defense. And then Allen uh, got him to play in 1972, uh, his final season in the NFL. So he he molded the defense to a really good squad. These, these players, they were aging, but they had a few, they had some mileage left in him and he was able to get the most out of them in 1972. The team plateaued after that. He didn't. He never reached that level again. And I would also say that, in my opinion, his 1967 team, coaching the Rams, was his best team in the NFL. That 11-1-2 team that uh, lost in the first round of the playoffs to the Packers. But uh, that was just a great team. I mean, the Baltimore Colts also finished 11-1-2 that season and didn't even go to the playoffs. To give you a, a snapshot of the level of competition that existed back in that day. It's really hard for me to picture uh, Chris Hamburger as being that type of person. All the times I've talked to him at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, he's this soft-spoken older gentleman who uh, seems like he's more uh, more likely to give you like a Werther's, uh, you know, uh, caramel than anything else. He's he's not the he's not the hammer that he once was. He's very soft-spoken now and kind of quiet and reserved to himself. So that's interesting. I hadn't heard that tackling style of him before. Well, that's, I'll just expound on that a little bit. That's I think that's one reason it may have taken him quite a long time to get into the Hall of Fame. He wasn't flamboyant in any way, outspoken. Didn't he never talked to the press? Okay, so the reporters really didn't get a chance to know him. So what you're saying is kind of in line with with his personality. That's that's the way was. a lot. This is just real. This gentle guy. I mean, I wouldn't call him a gentle giant. He was very small for a linebacker, but uh, that's who, who Chris Hamburger was. It actually, is one of one of his nicknames when he played for Allen was Charles Bronson because of his hairstyle. <laughs> he does. Yeah, and he kind of looks like him, too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Mike Richmond, our guest, by the way, he is a uh, football historian and uh, the author of George Allen, A Football Life, and uh, it's about the uh, coach, George Allen, and, and there's another piece of it, too, that we'll get into later, but uh, I think George has something he wanted to ask you here. Yeah, obviously, George Allen was known for his affinity for veterans, and you've gone into that a little bit, and I thought that that sort of came full flower with him during his time with the Redskins. You've already mentioned some. I also think of Billy Kilmer and, you know, some others that, you know, were able to sort of blossom in the later years of their career with him because can you go go into we, – we know he had the love for him. Why, why was that love with the veterans so much with him, and why did he pursue veterans over maybe a younger player? It's a very interesting point that I, I elaborated on in the book because as the head talent scout of the Bears – he had a very keen eye for great college talent. I mean, he drafted Ditka in 1961. He drafted Butkus and Sayers in 63. Now, you may say, well, those guys, you know, that's a no-brainer. I mean, anybody could draft them. But still, I mean, not every top five pick is, it, you know, is a home run. I mean, so, but those guys are in the Hall of Fame today. He led the drafting of Ronnie Bull 
uh, NFL Rookie of the Year, I believe, in 1962. Uh, at that time, I think he rushed for only more than 400 yards, but still, he was Rookie of the Year. Um, there were other great young players he had in that 65 draft. The point I'm getting at is he he switched his approach, his thinking, when he became a head coach in the NFL. He he turned more to the veterans, and he did a lot of that with the Rams. I mean, he made like 50-some trades, orchestrated those trades while he was with the Rams, and, and then he was even, you know, he was even more fanatical about it when he was with the Redskins. But I, I, in fact, I asked Bruce Allen, his son, that question. Bruce was a ball boy for the for the Rams when, when his father coached there, and then later uh, ball boy a couple years with the Redskins. So, and he had a lot of uh, insight into you know both eras in his father's life i asked him that question i said why why that great eye for young talent as you know with the bears and then focusing on veterans as a head coach and bruce explained it that by the time his father became a head coach in the nfl in 1966 things were starting to evolve a little bit in terms of more pressure on the head coaches to win i wouldn't say it was the immediacy that exists today i mean could be like one season and you're out or two seasons and you're out today. But it was, the pressure existed there. I mean, the television contracts were building. They were coming becoming much more lucrative. So the money was was starting to, you know, become more noticeable in the league. So I think the coaches felt it more at the time, and certainly Allen did. He felt that urgency to win right away, and he thought he could do it with veterans. But, um, uh, yeah, like one veteran he acquired with the – with the Rams, Lee must have touched on this, was Roger Brown, um, who Allen basically had in his Rolodex. He got him right away when Rosa Greer went down with an injury. But then he really, you know, he took that to a new a new dimension in um, with the Redskins. He made so many more trades for veterans. And with the Redskins, he had total control of the player roster as well as the draft. With the Rams, he just had control of the roster. Dan Reeves, the owner, had control of the draft. But Allen was everything with the Redskins. He was the general manager and coach and control everything. So that's actually one of the reasons that um, Edward Bennett Williams didn't like him, didn't, you know, came to to really uh, load the fact that Allen was spending so much money on veteran players and it really led to a lot of the antagonism that the two held for, for one another. But Allen did. And also another point I want to make is, uh, and you alluded to this, George, he resuscitated the careers of, of a few veteran players, such as Billy Kilmer. Kilmer was basically, you would say, he was near the end of his career with the with the Saints. He was like he played in the NFL for ten seasons by the end of the nineteen seventy season. And but Allen resuscitated his career. He gave him a new opportunity in Washington. Allen and um, and Kilmer, you know his his luck. I mean, Jurgensen suffered that injury in the seventy one preseason. Jurgensen was going to be the starter all the way. Allen was very excited to have him as a starting quarterback, but he went down with an injury in the seventy one preseason. Immediately, Allen uh, Kilmer stepped in as the starting quarterback and actually started most of the time in Allen's first four seasons uh, coaching the the Redskins seventy one through seventy four, uh, and then. Um, while while Kilmer and Jurgensen were together, um, but another player, Ron McDowell. I mean, he was on the outs with the uh, with the Bills owner. I mean, was was a Roush. Uh, um, he didn't. They those two didn't see eye to eye. So uh, McDowell wanted out from Buffalo. Roy Jefferson didn't like Carol Rosenblum in Baltimore, even though Roy Jefferson had just earned a Super Bowl ring, Super Bowl five. He wanted out from Baltimore. So Allen resuscitated his career in Washington. And Jefferson, I mean. It, Kilmer was was 
uh, Allen's best acquisition, in my opinion, in, in that 71 season. But Jefferson, he, it was so clutch because Charlie Taylor suffered a season-ending injury in the sixth game of the season against the Chiefs. So Jefferson stepped in, had an amazing season. He went to the he went to the Pro Bowl in '71. So um, Allen just had this eye for for uh, veteran talent. I mean, he knew these guys had a few more good years in le- left in them, and and they really, in turn, they they loved him for it. Not all of the existing players appreciated him, but the the players that he acquired, Jack Party being another guy. I mean, he had been in the league since what '56, '57. Um, Allen acquired him as one of the Ramskins. He gave Allen two more years in Washington, 71-72. He was a great play caller on defense, and he was the captain of the defense and led that Redskins defense that was the real highlight of that team in the 72 season, that Super Bowl season. So I hope that answered your question in terms of his uh, his focus on veterans. Yeah, yeah. definitely. You know, and, and, and I was reading here, here before we got, got by, by, by Dick Vermeil and Sam and Bobo Sunlight, but just reading a couple of quotes by him and saying how he having. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble. There's a static with the microphone. Yeah, can you hear me now? Can you hear me uh, no. Yes, now I can hear you. Now, now you can hear me. What I was saying is that I was uh, reading some of the, the forward here and some of the quotes by Dick Vermeil, which is really cool that you got Coach Vermeil to, to do your forward for the book. But um, he had a large impact on on a lot of the decisions that the Coach Vermeil made, like he said, going after a Willie Rofe later in his career coaching and going after a Claude Humphrey. And the two quotes that really struck me here that he said that, that George Allen – would always say we're losing is worse than dying. You have to get up the next morning and face it all over again. And playing like we did today, we should donate all our checks to charity. I think those are just two fantastic quotes, but his style was really, really unique and it, and it had an impact on Dick Vermeil. And it, it makes me wonder now too, part of the reason why Kurt Warner's career was the way it was is because I don't know, maybe Dick Vermeil was reminded of, of the the George Allen way of bringing these over the hill guys in, I mean, he really did. Did he did he shape what a lot of the modern NFL is now because of that? With teams starting the year and saying, you know what, let's go find a couple of good veterans. Was was he one of the first to really do that? Well, I think he does have his fingerprints on the league today because of that. But I think where it, it his legacy really stands out more is he introduced schemes on defense that are still used today the five and six defensive backs, the nickel and dime defenses, respectively. Those are still part of the fabric of today's game. And he also, he made special teams special. Uh, Vermeil being a perfect example, he hired Vermeil as one of the first special teams coaches in the NFL in 1969, the same year the Eagles hired Marv Levy. So Vermeil and Levy were the first two true special teams coaches in the NFL. But, uh, but Allen also, he put more emphasis on special teams than all of his NFL coaching peers did. I mean, he would count on those special teams for at least two wins per season through a block kick or, you know, a great uh, kick return. And in fact, uh, on a Monday night game in 1970, uh, or it was in the 70s, um, he introduced, he wanted the special teams introduced first. And it angered uh, Pete Rozelle, <laughs> the NFL commissioner. He said, no, you can't do that. But yeah, he wanted special teams introduced first. He wanted them to to believe that they were an, an integral part of the game. And he would tell... A lot of those special teams players, Bill Malinchek, 
great Redskins pump blocker uh, early in the mid seventies and uh, Rusty Tillman, one of the um, you know great uh, coverage guys on, on the Redskins kick coverage guys. They both told me, Hey, you know, Allen would approach us in the locker room before the game. He would say, this game rests on your shoulders. And it's actually one of the reasons Allen is one of the greatest motivation, motivational coaches in NFL history. Um, NFL films did a, um, you know, in one of his top 10, they named him the uh, number five, greatest motivational coach in NFL history. So, um, yeah, he's, uh, in answer to your question, that, those are other parts of, you know, other areas where he he definitely made an impact on the game today. Well, and I think that's really unique to hear that because covering different NFL games just about every other week and going to the locker rooms, the one thing I always feel looking at locker rooms now is that the special teams guys don't seem to be a part of the rest of the roster. Like their, their lockers are all right next to each other. And I don't know what coaches say to them before and after the games, but it never seems like the rest of the team talks with the kickers or talks with the punters as much. And that's, that's cool to hear that, that he spent that time to go and tell them that, because I can't tell you how many times I've seen a team lose a game because of poor punting or because a guy missed a kick at the end or because a snap was bad. I mean, I think every one of us has a story about that with our favorite NFL team. So of course it's important. Of course they're, you know, one of the three phases of the game. You know, it's it's crazy to think that there were coaches before him that didn't feel that way. Right. Well, I, I just want to also, you know, and, and turning to modern times, I mean, Sunday's game between the Eagles and, and Bills, I mean, that game, this flashed before me the block field goal and the missed field goal by the Bills. That basically decided that game when you count up all the points, okay? That decided that game, those, those two missed field goals. I mean, that – that I just thought of George Allen when that happened, you know, his emphasis on special teams and how important they are, the block kicks and also the missed field goal, which I think was pretty much a chip shot. I maybe it been like a 40 yard field goal or something, although it was a driving rain. But, um, but anyway, but that's an example of how special teams can decide a game for, for good and bad. I wanted to go into uh, something. I, I uh, this is sort of on the periphery with him, but uh, and I know there's a famous story involved. But he had uh, a, a relationship with President Nixon, uh, and I wanted you to go into that because I guess I guess one thing that that struck me is is and we talked to Lee about this, and I know uh, you also talk about it in your book is uh, Alan was known as was was hardly a fiscal conservative. I mean, he he liked to spend money. And then I, I see this relationship with Richard Nixon. I know they both had ties with Whittier and everything else. But uh, I guess a twofold question. I, I like you to go into the, the Nixon story and the play call and everything. But I, I also was curious, was Allen a political conservative? I, I was curious about that, too. So I, I, it's sort of a twofold question. Sure. Uh, to the second part, uh, I did ask his son, uh, George Felix Allen, who, you know, former politician himself, U.S. Senator and, uh, and Governor of Virginia. The way he explained it, his father was basically apolitical. He wasn't. The only time he, he ever campaigned for somebody was for Ronald Reagan, another another friend of his. He can't. He did, was on a campaign trip for him in um, in 1980, but otherwise he never really got involved in, in politics to a large extent. There was a situation in 1972 when, when Nixon was running for his, his second term where Allen was one of several NFL coaches and players who signed a poster 
for for Nixon's uh, reelection. But um, he never was out on the campaign trail for, for Nixon in any way. But they were they were friends. I mean, and like you said, they first met when Alan coached at Whittier and they came in contact at an NCAA banquet in the early 50s. And Nixon wanted to meet this guy who was the head coach of Whittier because that, that was Nixon's alma mater. So that's how they first came in contact and they were talking X's and O's. And, and Nixon was actually a very intelligent guy in terms of, of sports and particularly football. This guy had an encyclopedic memory when it came to football. And um, so, but they, they kept in touch over the years and uh, they, um, and actually speaking of politics, so I will touch on this and this is in the book. When Nixon called for the bombing of Cambodia in 1969 or 70, Allen wrote him a letter saying, because there were a lot of uh, Democrats in Congress and also the media that were criticizing Nixon for doing that. So there was a letter that I uncovered it in the archives at the Hall of Fame where, where Allen said, oh, Mr. President, don't worry about whatever, what all the critics are saying. You do what you think is best. And it was in reference to his bombing of Cambodia. But um, anyway, when, when Allen became the coach in 1971 of the Redskins and Nixon was in his third year in the White House, that's where they, of course, where they intersected in Washington, which really, a lot of people think that's where they first met but that's not true, of course. In terms of the, of the play, the Reds, in the 1971 season, the Redskins were struggling a little bit. In a, a three-game stretch around midseason, they had a tie and two losses. So Nixon contacted the Redskins and said, um, is it okay if I come out and give the team a pep talk? I want to come out to Redskins Park, in, which was then in Chantilly, Virginia. And that was actually Allen's brainchild. He had he had called for the uh, building of of, Nixon, of uh, Redskins Park, which was a state-of-the-art facility at the time. So sure enough, Nixon came out. It was several days before Thanksgiving in 1971. He had his, his entourage, you know, Secret Service people. All of the White House press corps was there. They all streamed onto the practice field. The players didn't know what was going on. Um, they they hadn't been given, they hadn't been tipped off that the president was going to be there. But while he was there, and this is a story that actually Marv Levy shared with me, Allen uh, tipped him off on a play. He said, uh, one of the plays I'd like you to call here in practice is, is an end around to Roy Jefferson. And there was also a, um, a fullback screen that Allen called in that practice. It was like a little, you know, he was there for about an hour, hour and a half. He called a few plays in, in, in the practice there and the, and the Redskins ran them. So later that season, about, I would say, lead, in the days leading up to the playoff game against the 49ers, Nixon called to Redskins Park. He got Allen on the phone and then he got Billy Kilmer. And he said to both guys, he said, listen, I would really like to see an end around to Roy Jefferson in the playoff game. When the, the game actually rolled around, though, well, it was late in the first half. The Redskins had like a first and 10 around the 49ers 12-yard line. That play was called. And it was really unusual for an Allen coach team to call such a, a risky players, you know, trickery at that point when they're so close to the goal line, you know, with his conservative style of play calling. But sure enough, that play was called and uh, Jefferson was, was dropped for a, a 10 yard loss by a guy named Cedric Hardman, uh, 49ers defensive end. They didn't, Redskins didn't score a touchdown. They were up 10, three at that time. They didn't score a touchdown and the, the snap on the field goal was low. So they weren't able to attempt the field goal. So speaking of the importance of special teams, they didn't score any points at the end of the first half. 
and they went into halftime 10-3 demoralized. The other point I want to make about that play, though, is that, and I, I spoke to Billy Kilmer about it, he believes that play was called by Ted Marchabroda. Yeah, Nixon had asked for the play several days prior to the game, but actually when the play was called, it was Ted Marchabroda, the Redskins offensive coordinator, sending it in from the sidelines. Got it. Interesting. Okay. What, that was, what, that's what I, how that, that whole thing evolved. What I want to know is, is what would have been the, the worst blunder to fans in D.C.? Uh, that play call by Nixon or Watergate, what would they have disliked more? Was it was it the play call probably? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think they got there with, with Nixon's re- resignation, the press got what they wanted and a lot of the people in, in D.C. got what they wanted. You know, and actually, uh, Nixon, I, I think it was inevitable he would have been impeached. But his resignation is, is what the, you know, a lot of in the media wanted uh, and and a lot of the Redskins fans wanted. In terms of the play, I'll say it's talked about to this day in the Washington area by people who remember that whole sequence. And in fact, I've gotten that question a number of times in, in interviews about the, about my George Allen book, you know, how did that whole play evolve? And because people from back then, they do remember, they remember Nixon called a play, but they don't remember these, you know, they don't really know the inside story, the exact sequence about how that play was called. But I don't think Redskins fans are, Back then, they were angry over it, or they were, you know, frustrated over the way Jefferson was was dropped for a ten yard loss, and they were pushed out of, you know, touchdown range or whatever. But um, but today, it's more of a a matter of curiosity about that play. The fact that the belief is that you know Nixon called the play during the game, or he maybe maybe phoned it in from the Oval Office or something like that. You know, you know, I can appreciate the fact that people still think about that play because, of course, here in Cleveland, you know, we forget plays all the time. You know, the drive, the fumble, the shot. You know, we 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 don't we don't belabor those things. <laughs> but right. hey, um, I lost my train of thought because I uh, was talking about the drive, the shot, the fumble. Uh, too much baggage. Too, that he brought too, up. too much baggage. I brought. I did up. ask Ernest Ernest Biner a while back about that fumble. By the way. So. <laughs> did you? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because he ended up with the ended up with Washington. Yeah. Right. So, um, go ahead, John. You know, Mike, I, I I did want to ask you about being able to get Coach Vermeil to write the foreword for this. I mean, I I know a lot of other authors that have gotten. Uh, great folks to write a uh, forward to it. In, in Lee's case, he, he did a tribute to his father at the beginning of his book. But um, what was that like, your conversations with Coach Vermeil and 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 him deciding to do that for you? And, and how cool was that to have that moment with him? Well, it was really – it was amazing that a man of his stature would, would agree to do it. Um, and – of course, I knew of his involvement with, with George Allen being the special teams coach. It really, when thinking back, it could have been either Vermeil or Marv Levy. Vermeil was a special teams coach for one year in L.A. Levy was a special teams coach for two years in Washington. Both are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Both um, are well-deserving of that honor. Uh, but Dick Vermeil was basically, he was receptive to it right away. I mean, uh, he... he 
really admired George Allen so much over the years, as you mentioned in the in reading part of the forward. Uh, there are several things that he has derived from from Allen, things that he he's uh, he implemented as, as a coach himself over the years. So he had so much admiration for him. He he knew of the family too. I believe um, you know he was in touch with uh, Etty Allen, George Allen's wife, over the years. He really admired her. And um, so, yeah, he was very receptive to it, but it, it was very cool to to get a man of his of his standing to to write the forward. And, and I've gotten very similar questions from from people about that. You know, I, why Dick Vermeil, and you know how great was that that you were able to get him to write the forward? So, so yeah, but it could it it could have either been Vermeil or Marv Levy, and like I said, both were were well deserving of that honor. Mike, I got back my train of thought. One last question. Uh, you've written a book about George Allen. You also wrote the book about Joe Gibbs. Can you compare and contrast the two? I think the greatest comparison between the two is that both were very industrious men. I mean, both were, they both slept in their their offices at Redskins Park. Uh, Allen, of course, was the first one to do that here in Washington that I know of. And then, then Gibbs took the mantle um, in the eighties, but um, their, their coaching philosophy was entirely different in terms Gibbs was a offensive oriented coach and, and Allen was, was primarily defense. So in that respect, you know, they, they had two different visions of, of the game and how, and what they should concentrate on as coaches. But, um, and they had their own ways with players too. I, Allen was much more of a rah-rah type of coach, you know, like you guys alluded to before, you know, he would have a way of pumping those players up with his enthusiasm Gibbs, not so much. I, I think Gibbs did it more out of respect. The fact when he started winning, the players really, I mean, I, this probably happens with, with most, if not all coaches, but the players really started gravitating to him. They they gained this uh, just tremendous respect for, for Joe Gibbs and, and who he was. But uh, he was just such a, you know, he was a genius when it came to offense. Um, he didn't, invent the, the uh, single back offense, the, the two tight end single back offense. I believe he learned that from Coriel, but he took that to a new level in Washington. And, you know, with, you know, he got so fortunate with Riggins, Joe Washington got hurt in the, in the uh, 82 preseason Riggins took over as the single back that year. And then really stepped forward in, in the 82 playoffs and, you know, the rest is history. But, um, but yeah, they had two different philosophies on what they should concentrate on as, as coaches, but they're, their workaholic nature was very similar. They 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 knew they could make good decisions at halftime. They, you know, if they if the team was struggling or whatever, but they could make good decisions at halftime to make engineer that that second half comeback because they had done so much homework on their respective teams. Mike Richmond, pro football historian, as well as an author and author of the book that we're speaking about right now, which is George Allen, A Football Life. It is uh, Mike Richmond, the author, and forward by Dick Vermeil. Mike, if people would like to purchase the book, maybe uh, a Washington fan wants to get it for someone as a Christmas gift, or maybe they just want to learn more about the great history of uh, the great coach, where can they do that? Well, thank you for asking, John. It's available through traditional means, uh, Amazon being one site where, where anybody can get it. If you want an author autographed copy, though, go to my website, MikeRichmanJournalist.com, 
and Richmond is R-I-C-H-M-A-N, MikeRichmondJournalist.com for an author autographed personalized copy. So, um, and I'd be happy to uh, give put my John Hancock for, on it for anyone who, who asks. Rich, uh, Mike Richmond, we appreciate you joining us uh, and uh, being part of uh, the podcast tonight and uh, look forward to the next time that we get to chat about uh, history, about the team that plays in D.C. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, John and George. I, I appreciate it and I, I loved your questions. Absolutely. And uh, uh, happy holidays to you as well. Thank you. All the best to you. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.